Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 118, June 19th to June 25th, 1863. Last week, we had a good couple of events. Naval action at Wausau Sound, 2nd Winchester, and some operations in Louisiana that don't really lead to very much at all for the Confederacy. This week, we're going to go in-depth on the overlooked achievements of the Union Army in early July of 1863, the Tullahoma Campaign. Fear not if you've not heard of it, we're going to get into why it is so important, and also why you probably haven't heard of it as well. Before we do that, though, let's talk a little bit about the Patreon here. We did have an episode memoir review for Max Lee Sorrell that was posted here at the beginning of the month, and we're rolling into July here, so we're going to have a movie review. Of course, we got to do Gettysburg. It's hard to believe that we're already there. Next week, we'll be getting into it for real, and uh, that movie, obviously, is one of the best Civil War movies probably, in my opinion, actually holds that title as the best Civil War movie. So, you know, spoiler alert for how I feel about the movie, but we'll be talking about that. And if that sounds like something that would interest you, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description, and those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. They're greatly appreciated. So let's head to Virginia and fight a string of cavalry actions. I'm going to apologize, though, in advance if this seems to be a little scattered. I separated some of the troop movements last week and kept the cavalry actions to this week. If you recall, Lee begins his movement into Pennsylvania by setting out on June 10th from around Culpeper. It was thought Jeb Stewart and his rebel cavalry were in fact going to raid around the Union Army, a la perhaps the Catlett Station Raid of 1862. This, of course does not happen. Instead, Stewart is going to screen the lead elements of Ewell's Corps, followed by A.P. Hill, and then Longstreet. In particular interest to Lee is going to be the passes in the Blue Ridge Mountains. As long as those are safe and secure, the invasion is going to succeed. Three villages would be the main area of operations, those being Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville. Aldi is important because it is relatively where the Little River Turnpike and the Snickersville Turnpike meet. Stewart would realize their importance and move forward with Thomas Munford's command. Hooker was wishing to get real intel on the enemy, urging Pleasanton to act. Alf would send Kilpatrick forward on June 17th. The two forces would meet at Aldi, the Union troopers seeing some initial success, pushing the enemy out of town. The 2nd New York, along with the 6th Ohio, would push the 5th Virginia back with the assistance of a battery of the 1st U.S. Munford would pull back to a stone wall and there set up defensively. The 4th New York and the 1st Massachusetts were unable to dislodge their enemy from the strong position. In fact, the 1st Massachusetts suffered 198 out of 295 troopers as casualties. 
Kilpatrick would have to turn to his last regiment, the 1st Maine, in order to stymie a Confederate counterthrust aimed at capturing the artillery pieces. In his charge, the colonel of the 1st Maine, Calvin Doughty, would fall. Munford would withdraw, though. Stewart, in the meantime, was almost caught by surprise yet again. Alfred Defee, at the head of his old regiment, the 1st Rhode Island, would force him out of his headquarters at Middleburg via flanking movement. Dufy would choose to remain where he was. should actually be pointed out that the French officer was actually demoted following his performance at Brandy Station. We mentioned how that was particularly disappointing for the Union and that they could have broken through at Stevensburg, but they did not. And uh, as a result, we see some shuffling in the cavalry, and we'll talk a little bit more about what was moving around a little bit in terms of officers here shortly. But just know that that's why Alfred here is at the head of the 1st Rhode Island instead of a brigade. Beverly Robertson would counter, and the 9th Virginia would finish off the 1st Rhode Island, who would make it back to Union lines having been soundly defeated on the 18th. Stewart was able to utilize high ground to the west of Middleburg. Artillery and cavalry under Robertson would meet Gregg's division and repulse all assaults. Likewise, Munford would turn back Buford a little further north. Jeb would need to regroup and await reinforcement from Grumble Jones and Wade Hampton, so he would pull back yet again. Bolstered with additional numbers, a new defensive line would be set up at Upperville on the 20th. On June 21st, Gregg would again assault the center of the Rebel line, while Buford attempted to flank toward the north. Kilpatrick again would be in the thick of the fighting with Wade Hampton's men, who would see charges and countercharges, resulting in a stalemate. Buford would see some success, pushing toward a key crossroads in the rear of the enemy lines, that would cut off a large part of the force. Determined defense by Grumble Jones would secure this avenue of retreat, Buford being forced to withdraw. Much as after Brandy Station, Pleasanton would claim victory, despite failing in his primary objective. He would pull back, Hooker moving north, both armies marching on and into the Keystone State. We cannot end this week, though, especially when talking about cavalry, without talking about the famous orders Robert E. Lee gives to Jeb. In these orders, Lee will write, Judge whether you can pass around their army without hindrance, doing them all the damage you can. Stuart is chomping at the bit, and yes, that is a little cavalry pun there, to get at the Union Army. He thinks that getting a round hooker is probably going to be a good idea, because he's going to be able to cut off supply and communication. This could potentially be useful. The issue with Lee's orders are that they are going to essentially leave it up to Stuart. But the problem is going to be that the route that Stuart takes runs first into Union baggage trains, and then keeps him from being in contact with Yule and his corps. The big stipulation is that Stuart remains in contact with that lead corps, as he still needs to do his job screen the northern movement, and also provide intelligence on Hooker's movements. 
Remember that a cavalry force is necessary for this purpose, and so far, Stuart has done a good job in providing that. Lee is going to ask staff officers if they know the whereabouts of his cavalry, which is certainly not going to be a good look. The Grey Fox will not hear from his flamboyant horse chief until July 1st. On the way, despite doing some raiding, the cavalry will not perform well. They would run into Delaware Cavalry on June 29th at Westminster, Maryland. Making their way to York, Pennsylvania, because they received word that that was where Early was, they will run into Judson Kilpatrick at Hanover. Kilpatrick's cavalry was covering the right of the Federal movement north. He passed through the town, but Farnsworth would charge back in that direction when the Confederate cavalry came up on his rear. The 18th Pennsylvania, the rear guard would suffer heavily, but a counterattack by the 5th New York would clear Hanover. From there, the two sides would disengage and duel with their respective artillery. Stuart would break off toward York and then Carlisle, running into militia there and burning the barracks, something the nostalgic Yule had not done, having once occupied them in the old army. From there, they will finally be able to link up with the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia in time for the third day at Gettysburg. Now, you may be wondering if Stuart took all of the cavalry with him on his venture. The answer is that he took most of them, except his two seemingly poor performers at Brandy Station. One was Beverly Robertson, and the other was Grumble Jones. The latter may not be because of poor performance, but rather because he was not getting along with them. Jones and Robertson would be left to guard passes in the Blue Ridge, and the expectation was that they would then join the army after Hooker had moved into the northern states. Even when there were no Yankees to threaten the routes any longer, the cavalry stayed, not moving to join the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia until the battle was over. Thus, Lee would use what he had on hand, namely the cavalry of John M. Bowden and units like Albert Jenkins, who were partisans. But even with these, they would be spread very thin. This lack of cavalry is going to play into the beginning of the battle, which we have already talked about, but we'll get into next week. Now, there's also an argument here that some people make in that originally it was planned that Wade Hampton would remain with the Army of Northern Virginia, and there would be, of course, a competent regular cavalry force and officer that could assist Lee. And I have seen in some of the sources that I read that if this had happened, then the campaign is going to be very different. Now, is Wade Hampton remaining with Ewell going to win the Battle of Gettysburg? Is the Battle of Gettysburg even going to happen if Wade Hampton is there? There's a lot of questions that you can kind of roll out there and what ifs. But Stuart is not going to want to give up Wade Hampton. He, he wants a competent subordinate officer. And as we see here, leaving behind Robertson and leaving behind Grumble Jones is going to be a huge mistake, even though at the time, Stuart, he's not necessarily going to want people that are in his doghouse riding around an army. But riding around the army brings up a good point in that after Brandy Station, he gets heavily criticized. And we mentioned that in a previous episode. And these are real people. We have to think about that in that he 
wants to recapture some of that magic that had made him famous in the Confederate press. And what better way to do that than having ridden around McClellan two times? And you remember that morale boost to the Confederacy when he did it the first time around Richmond. What better way to do that than to ride around Hooker and the Army of the Potomac as they move into Pennsylvania? He does it a third time, then maybe he can start to change those negative comments back into his favor. So that's another thing that we need to think about. It's not probably not the only motivation that Stewart has, but we do need to think about that and that even though he wins Brandy Station, and you can argue that it gets really lucky, but even though he's turning in another victory, essentially, he is getting this sort of backlash from the Confederate press. So something that we should always keep in mind. This week, I want to talk about the Tullahoma campaign in its entirety. We sort of did a little aftermath of the Battle of Stones River, but it certainly has been a while. Mostly in the region, there have been cavalry battles, both sides jostling between one another. Bragg had withdrawn his men south of Murfreesboro to the Duck River. There, he had set up his troops in a defensive position, utilizing terrain. High ground, rising some 900 feet in some places known as the Highland Rim, would be used by the rebels, protecting the various gaps in the range. Davis and Johnson would be embroiled in the controversy surrounding Bragg and his generals, which we talked about in a previous episode. I've seen it pointed out that Davis might not have been close to Bragg, but he would not see him as someone who would argue with him. And that was a plus. Personally, I think there are not very many good alternatives, at least for Davis. Longstreet was a Johnson disciple, so sending him out west might not have been a best move. Should also be pointed out that Johnson is ready to relieve Bragg, but Bragg is going to fall ill, his wife is going to be ill. There are many times in which Bragg is not in the best of health, but that's going to kind of be sidetracked by this sickness and Johnson's just not going to go through with it. But it's one of those weird what if moments. If after Stone's River, Bragg had actually been relieved, you know, what would have happened? Uh, And I know I talk about what ifs a lot. I like thinking about them and some people don't, but it is something to ponder for sure. While there is general dissatisfaction with Bragg amongst the army, he does do a good job of getting his men supplied and organized, especially his cavalry. We discussed the skirmishing that happened in early 1863. We need to point out that the left flank was covered by Forrest and Van Dorn, so it was in good hands, although Forrest was growing tired of Van Dorn. The two would almost duel, but the fiery Forrest would then think better of the altercation the two men finding some sort of understanding before the Mississippi general's assassination at the hands of a jealous husband. John Hunt Morgan had covered the right flank and had not fared quite so well. He had been surprised at McMinnville and almost captured. There was speculation that Morgan was more interested in hanging out with his new bride than commanding and that he was never the same since getting married. There's a joke somewhere in there, but I'm not going to touch it. 
Morgan would want to spring a raid into Kentucky to gain his mojo back, so to speak, and go even further into Ohio and Indiana. While Bragg was not thrilled with him going that far, he would authorize a movement into the Bluegrass State. But Morgan would take more cavalry than he was supposed to, weakening that sector, and he was not going to stay in Kentucky either. This is going to play into how the Tullahoma campaign unravels, as we will soon see. While we checked in with Bragg, let's check in with Rosecrans and his army. Now remember that the Army of the Cumberland is going through a major overhaul, especially in the cavalry department. Furthermore, Rosecrans is going to lobby Washington for an increase in repeating weapons. He's going to do it, though, to the point that patience's are worn thin. One correspondence is fairly amusing, as it essentially says that he cannot have all of the weapons, and that's reflecting sort of the degree in which how many times Rosecrans is asking about them. The plan was to create elite units of veterans who would be armed with the repeating rifles. While the army would not receive enough of these repeaters, there would be some, and converted infantry would be useful to making a kind of flying mounted unit. There would be enough for a brigade, and commanding this brigade was John T. Wilder, who you remember from Munfordville. In his command would be the 98th, 123rd Illinois, as well as the 17th and 72nd Indiana. Pressure would come from Washington that there needed to be some kind of action. When not all the repeating guns had arrived, Rosecrans had some, and he had five corps to operate with. There were the usual suspects in Thomas, McCook, Crennenton, as well as a reserve corps under Gordon Granger, and an additional smaller corps under Van Cleve. He would take the fight to the enemy, exploiting the stretched Confederates, who now would be weakened in the intelligence department without Morgan. Using McCook and Thomas to hold Hoover and Liberty Gaps, Crittenden would flank the enemy and drive them. If you look at a map, the cities in the area laid out behind the Highland Rim, roughly as Shelbyville before Guy's Gap, Fairfield behind Liberty Gap, and Manchester behind Hoover's Gap. This last city would be Crittenden's primary objective. It's also how they go west to east, roughly, if you're looking at a map left to right. In order for the plan that Rosecrans had laid out to work, several things needed to happen. One of them was that there needed to be a big demonstration at Liberty Gap. This would be accomplished by McCook and his 20th Corps. A problem with Bragg's positions were that while he had spent some time in constructing some fortifications in certain areas, most notably Polk Sector, he was still spread very thin. August Villick would advance on the Gap and encounter only two regiments of Sinjin Little's Arkansas Brigade. These two were easily flanked on the 23rd, the Razorbacks being forced back through the Gap itself. Villick would not press the attack the next day, this not being part of the overall plan. But with the movements of the Federal forces, Little would believe that the enemy was withdrawing. He would attack with the blessings of his superior, Patrick Claiborne, and engage several regiments whilst they were maneuvering. 
Both sides would fight over high ground and throw units in as needed. Villa had drilled his men in a way in which they could essentially fire in advance, so this tactic was used during the fighting. As were Spencer repeating weapons armed by the 39th Indiana, a converted infantry regiment. Eventually, the Confederates would retreat, one of the regiments losing their colors in the process. Casualties on both sides were exaggerated, but they were more than likely on the lighter side. A large amount of partisan Alabama cavalry was captured in the action due to poor visibility and the lack of being able to use weapons effectively in pouring rain, which illustrates the type of environment the soldiers faced. The fact that it is raining is going to be lucky on the part of the Confederates, and it's going to be unfortunate on the part of the Union Army, as we're going to see here in a minute. Further action would occur on June 24th at Hoover's Gap. This was also important to the overall plan. George Thomas and his 14th Corps would be advancing on this position. The problem was that Hoover's Gap was extremely narrow, unlike Liberty Gap. Even a basic line of earthworks could stop any movement. Alexander Stewart's division was in charge of the defense of this sector, and while there had been some earthworks there, there were no infantry to man them, as Stewart had recently taken over and not been ordered to do so. Only some Kentucky cavalry would guard the gap as a result. John Wilder's brigade would lead the advance, scattering these defenders easily. But Wilder would have a decision to make. He could either hold and wait for the infantry supports, as he was ordered to do, who were some distance away, or he could stand and fight. Wilder, despite receiving those said orders on the contrary, would choose the latter and wait along with well-placed artillery on the south end of the gap. An entire brigade under the command of William Bate would make attacks on the outnumbered column, but the Spencers would display fire superiority and hold them off. Eventually, the rest of the column would arrive, Wilder and his men sitting in mud, still holding their positions. Overall, the Confederates had suffered some 146 casualties, compared to 61 from Wilder's brigade. Fellow officers would claim that for his efforts, Wilder had saved 1,000 to 2,000 lives by making his stand. Rosecrans would recommend him for promotion to Brigadier General as a result. But the fighting was not quite over yet. Federals would engage Bushrod Johnson on the 26th and drive him from the ridgeline. This attack was led by the regulars, who, you remembered, suffered casualties at Stones River. With Johnson pushed back, the Confederates were left with little options. Things were not going well. If you think about it especially, too, these actions are supposed to just be demonstrations, and yet they're having tremendous success in driving the Confederates from these positions that should have been more easily defensible. This wasn't supposed to be the strike. In the meantime, Crittenden's flanking movement would be bogged down. Terrain and road conditions due to the rain would be the primary issue. Some of the units in this corps would continue with baggage as opposed to traveling light, meaning their supply wagons would be bogged down as well. Rather than scrub the plan, Rosecrans would do a good job to adapt. This is something that I've seen it pointed out that if McClellan was in charge and the plan 
sort of unravels. He doesn't do a good job in deviating, but Rosecrans is going to do so, which makes him sort of a better general, right? One day I kind of want to do like a little power rankings for the generals on both sides. And uh, obviously that's going to go into consideration when we're making those. Thomas and his corps had seen some success at Hoover Gap, and they skirmished further with Alexander Stewart's division. It was possible there could still be a breakthrough exploited there. It was apparent, though, that the rebel army was spread much too thin. Bragg would entertain a flanking movement by Polk, with Hardy keeping the Yankees in place, but this was going to be beyond the abilities of the commanders present. By use of Guy's Gap, the objective would be to deal Rosecrans a blow, forcing him to retreat. It was also possible to maybe use Polk to combine with Hardy and then break up the gains already made, but this was also passed on. A retreat to Tullahoma was in the works. But the retreat was not without its problems. Confusion on the march had Claiborne going the wrong way. Entered to the stage the revamped cavalry for the Army of the Cumberland, specifically a brigade known as the Sabre Brigade, commanded by George Minty. He has several regiments under his command, including the 7th Pennsylvania, recruited from Pottsville, and 4th Michigan, and 4th U.S. Cavalry, who were engaged at Stones River. With the wider flanking move not going to work, Granger and his reserve corps moved up in the direction of Shelbyville. Guy's Gap, much to the theme of our story, would have provided a good defensive position for the rebels, but there would be no garrison in the gap, especially with the others further east already breached. But Bragg was more concerned with pulling his forces back. Polk was abandoning the town with Wheeler's cavalry covering the retreat. Forrest was ordered to Shelbyville, but he would not make it in time. Crucially, Wheeler believed he needed to hold on to their foothold over the Duck River until he arrived. Regardless, he needed to protect Polk's train, which was still moving out. Guy's Gap was forced by Stanley, who took charge of Robert Mitchell's division. Minty would spearhead the drive on Shelbyville, which although fortified, was not properly manned. The 7th and 4th U.S. would force their way in. Wheeler, it should be noted, was in the thick of it, and led a counterattack to push Minty back. In Shelbyville, the Confederates would try to reform with artillery. In one of the wildest charges of the war, Minty would turn to the 7th, 150 strong, and order them to charge the enemy. A British veteran would say that Balaclava had nothing on their assault. Maybe not in those words. I have words in the form of a quote. With the main body of the regiment, I went up the road, closing well upon the advance, and immediately engaged the rebel force. Leaving the road, which was covered by other regiments rapidly coming up, I went to the left and instructed my force to pursue the enemy through the woods, where they were flying thick and fast. This move improved very successful, my men having crowded a large number of the enemy into a field, surrounded by a picket fence, where they were captured. The effect of this charge in detail was most disastrous to the rebels. Many were killed and wounded. The number of prisoners taken was almost equal to the force I had engaged, and the field was literally strewn with arms, clothing, and blankets. The 7th, supported by the 4th Tennessee U.S., which hailed from Shelbyville, would break the rebel defenses. Major Charles Davis, who led the attack, would be awarded the Medal of Honor as a result. 
Wheeler would desperately try to rally his shattered command, but it was apparent flight was now the order of the day. The Confederate general would jump his horse into the Duck River, swimming to safety. Accurate rifle and carbine fire from the other side of the river would dissuade any further Union assaults. Shelbyville was a disaster for the Confederate cavalry. Including the large number captured, the losses were around 500 compared to maybe 50 on the Union side. So as if to better illustrate the increased quality of the Union mounted arm, Wilder would swing around south of the Elk River and east of Tullahoma. Overall, his raid did not accomplish too much other than some torn up railroad track. No men were lost in the drive south, though, and the line of communications for Bragg was cut. This was a big concern for the rebel general as he pulled his men into Tullahoma. Now, Tullahoma was not going to be a good spot to defend against the oncoming Union army. One federal general described the town as words in Greek, Tulla meaning mud, and Homa meaning more mud. So Bragg is not in a good spot, despite there being some improvements made to the earthworks there. Rosecrans has moved on Manchester to the north and east, and will then move on his position. It was thought that the Confederates would give battle, but this was scrubbed because of the poor position. Bragg's concern for his line of communication and the potential for another Union flanking move. The rebels would pull back behind the swollen Elk River, high because of the rains. July 2nd would see continuing skirmishing with veterans from the 104th Illinois crossing the river to capture a stockade. The 104th in particular was seeking redemption from their capture at Hartsville in the winter. The leader of the small army would receive the Medal of Honor for his brave action. The two armies would then move into area known as the Barrens. This was a resource-poor area that would not do well to supporting an army. Polk, though, did have a strong position, utilizing the terrain. The rebels could have made a stand, but rations were low, so the retreat would continue. Wheeler's cavalry would cover the retreat, fighting happening at University Place. University Place now being the site of a university that Polk actually helps to find in the University of the South, otherwise known as Suwannee, and that is where that happens. The 8th and 11th Texas would perform well in particular in stopping the probing motions by northern troops. Bragg would continue with his crossing of the Tennessee River and in so doing give up Middle Tennessee to the Yankees. A further chase was dissuaded by the supply situation as well as the destruction of key bridge crossings. July 4th, the Tullahoma campaign would come to a close. But what exactly is the takeaway? Bragg does not get good marks for this action, which is not surprising. Unfairly, it is a footnote compared to Vicksburg and Gettysburg, but significant nonetheless. This is the kind of action where the real crime is that there were no large-scale battles at the end. Casualties were light, 570 for the Union compared to 600 battlefield losses on the Confederate side even the War Department seemed to overlook the campaign. Rosecrans would actually argue as such with Stanton in a correspondence. Just receive your cheering dispatch announcing the fall of Vicksburg and confirming the defeat of Lee. You do not appear to observe the fact that this noble army has driven the rebels from Middle Tennessee, of which my dispatches advise you. 
I beg in behalf of this army that the War Department may not overlook so great an event because it is not written in letters of blood. I have now to repeat that the Rebel Army has been forced from its strong entrenched positions at Shelbyville and Tullahoma and driven over the Cumberland Mountains. My infantry advance is within 16 miles and my cavalry advance within 8 miles of the Alabama line. No organized Rebel force within 25 miles of there nor on this side of the Cumberland Mountains. So we can see that Rosecrans is, of course, very upset by this. And he's already bumping heads with the War Department, which in the long term is not going to be good for him and the continuing of his career. Nor is it going to be good, especially because he already bumped heads with Grant earlier in the war. But that's something we'll get into. That's another story. But he's sort of right in that there were a lot of casualties at Vicksburg. Some would say unnecessary casualties on the part of Grant with these ill advised assaults that were not well coordinated obviously Gettysburg is Gettysburg and we'll get into that next week but also there's a failure on the part of Meade to finish Lee off when he has the chance seemingly so Rosecrans is kind of right in saying that hey I need to get my flowers here too in that I did do this great campaign of maneuver I was able to adapt on the fly something that not every commanding general as we have mentioned you know a la McClellan has been able to do and I'm not getting that much praise. East Tennessee and Middle Tennessee have been on the objective list for the Union, and he has now pushed Bragg all the way to Chattanooga, essentially, and that's going to be the gateway into the interior of the Confederacy. He's able to get into northern Alabama as well, something that the Union Army has not done since you know 1862. We talked about that with Nathaniel Banks, but... Finally, he's on the doorstep of the objective of capturing Chattanooga, which honestly probably should have happened in 1862, but then we had the Heartland Campaign, and then we know how that turns out. Bragg goes into Kentucky, and we fight the Battle of Perryville there. But I would also like to throw out there that in this campaign of maneuver, and having already won at Stones River, you know, turning in a good performance at Corinth, Rosecrans is sort of solidifying himself at least at this time, as the best general the Union Army has. And I know it's hard to think, especially with the legacy that Rosecrans has in the modern day, especially, and that's partly due to Ulysses S. Grant and kind of writing the narrative of how the war shakes out. But there's serious consideration that Rosecrans, should he win another great battlefield victory, be shifted to overall command of Union forces, so he would, in turn, take what Grant is going to be given, right? And maybe even move to the East and be the primary antagonist for Robert E. Lee as well. So there's things that could have ended up very differently, and that's always an interest. Again, I've done a lot of what-ifs in this episode, right? But what if Rosecrans is placed directly opposite Lee in the East? Rosecrans obviously has these very good campaign ideas. He's able to adapt on the fly. He might actually be a really tough opponent for Lee, or at least the toughest that he's seen so far. And I know that's hard to think, and there might be some Civil War folks who, you know, are yelling at their podcast uh, device right now, whatever you're listening on, and saying, oh, no, 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 Rosecrans would not have been able to hold a candle to Lee. And, you know, I don't think it's a secret that I think Lee is probably the best general in the Civil War period. But still, I think it would have been probably a closer 
decision than some people might think. So now that I got through that little rant there, we can get back to it here. For the Confederacy, obviously, this is a major setback. General Bragg is in ill health during most of the campaign, but he fails to be decisive or come up with a plan to counter the Federals. The fact that he was not the right guy for the job was on full display in these maneuvers. Rosecrans does do a good job in using his improved cavalry, number one, and then also deviating from his original plan, as mentioned. The weather is a big winner here, making its mark on the movements of the soldiers, so give that W to Mother Nature on the score sheet. So, we will go ahead and bring this episode to a close. This week we had a handful. We needed to talk first about the cavalry actions leading up to Gettysburg. We also had the often overlooked Tullahoma campaign. Next week, it's hard to believe, we are finally there. We are going to get into the Battle of Gettysburg. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.